This is Luke 19, 28 through 40. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need of it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. The whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who has come in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Well, it was almost 65 years ago, on June 2nd, 1953, when Elizabeth Alexandra Mary, better known as Queen Elizabeth II, became the monarch of the United Kingdom, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, and Pakistan. It was the last royal coronation to take place in the 20th century, and it was the first major international event to be broadcast on television. In fact, uh, the BBC was filming it as it happened, and they would send dispatches of the film uh, across the Atlantic with the Royal Air Force to Canada so the Canadians could watch the event the same day as it took place. There were more than 200 microphones set along the processional path, 750 commentators uh, broadcasting in 39 different languages. The princess who was becoming the queen rode in the royal gold stagecoach made of almost entirely pure gold, weighing, uh, I don't know exactly how much it weighs, but a, enough to it takes, so that it takes eight uh, grown horses to pull it, and they can only do so at a walking pace. The coach today is worth about $1.57 million. It's estimated there were more than 20 million viewers watching, and uh, not too long ago, Elizabeth actually did an interview recalling this day, and she remembers the stagecoach being bumpy. Um, apparently, the gold doesn't absorb the shock too well. But she also recalls when she would bow and uh, try not to let the crown fall off of her head. It weighed about five pounds, made of 22 karat gold, back in 1661. It was a big day for England. It was a big day for Elizabeth. And even if you weren't under English rule, it was a big day for the world, really. Uh, but it won't be the last. Kings and queens come and go. It wasn't the first coronation of England, and if the Lord doesn't come back, it won't be the last. But this day, the day in Luke chapter 19, there will never be another day like it. There will never be a day to match the day when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. At the end, that day will be far more significant than any coronation you and I might ever see here on earth. Last week, we started a new sermon series, and we're calling it Walking to the Cross. And we're looking at four different events in Jesus' life immediately leading up to his crucifixion. And what we are seeing is that in each one, Jesus is somehow being prepared or he is preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. 
And so the hope and the prayer for us as a church is that we would be prepared for Easter uh, to truly worship Jesus in his death and resurrection. Now the triumphal entry appears in all four Gospels. Now if you didn't know, that's actually fairly rare for an event to appear in all four of them. Uh, Now everything you read in the Bible is important. But if there's an event that's in all four Gospels, that's the Bible's own way of highlighting to you this is significant, okay? With, with kind of like extra significant. And so for that reason and a few others, we're going to look at Luke 19 today. It took several different committees, several dozen people, over 14 months to plan for Queen Elizabeth's coronation. People had been preparing and waiting for Jesus to ride into Jerusalem for over 500 years. And so if you would, um, we're going to look at Zechariah 9 before we look at Luke. And so you can go there in your Bibles if you'd like. It will also be on the screen. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, and his rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. One commentator wrote about Zechariah 9 that it is, quote, one of the most messianically significant passages of all the Bible. What he means by that is it's really important Uh, to understand who Jesus is and what he's done to understand Zechariah 9. And even though Luke doesn't quote Zechariah 9, it's definitely implicit, and you'll see how in a little bit, but some of the other gospel writers do make the connection explicit, and they quote Zechariah 9. So, we'll look at a few things. First off, in Zechariah 9, the command, it's a command. The prophecy is a call to do something. To rejoice, and not just to rejoice, kind of, to rejoice greatly, to be happy, to shout for joy. Something good is happening. He hasn't told you why. He's just said, you're going to like this. This is good news. Be happy. Why? Because your king is coming to you. Because your king comes to you. Now, the text gives us three adjectives to describe the king. It says that he's righteous. My translation says having salvation and gentle or humble. Because it's not a sermon on Zechariah 9, I don't have time to go through all of these. I'm going to zoom in on just one of these adjectives. And it's the one where it says having salvation. Some of your translations might say victorious or delivered or something along those lines. And I don't want to get too technical here, but there's something important we need to see about that particular word. Um, Some translators will put it as a possessive. The verb means to save, so it's something that Jesus has and he's bringing, like salvation is like it's in his hand and he's bringing it to you. Now other translations will say that it's passive, that salvation has been done to him. And there's a difference in those two. Now without getting into the minutia, it's the passive. That's how the verb is written in the original language, but it sounds weird to us because we know this is about Jesus. So to say that Jesus has been saved makes people uncomfortable. And the translators are smart. They're not dumb people. 
and they're trying to make sure that we don't walk around with this bad idea that Jesus is somehow incapable or in need of salvation in the same way that you and I are. But that's not what Zechariah 9 is getting at. There's textual links to other places in the Bible, uh, most notably Psalm 33, but uh, what's clear is that the reason he's been delivered, it means that he has trusted in Yahweh and Yahweh has come through for him, Yahweh being the God of Israel. So this king, now keep in mind, the first people who heard this didn't know Jesus. They weren't thinking Jesus yet. So they're just thinking a king coming who has trusted in God, and God has come through for this king and given him victory. And so he's coming back to the city victorious, not in his own right, but because his faith has allowed him defeat over his enemies. Now, His faith, his defeat, that brings peace. Look at verse 10. It says that he takes away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem. The battle bow is being broken. He's proclaiming peace to the nations. He's gathering up the instruments of war and he's taking them away, not to force peace, but just because they're not needed anymore. This is very similar to other passages in scripture, Isaiah 9, Isaiah 2, and a few other places where the coming of some figure results in being done with war. Whenever this king happens to come, the desire to kill each other, the tendency that humans have to destroy each other, will be gone. Sin and selfishness, will just, it just will be gone. It won't be there. There will be no need for those things. And so he rounds that up and he brings peace to the nations You see, it says he proclaims peace to all the world and his rule will extend from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. The reason to rejoice is because this king is riding into Jerusalem in victorious procession and his procession means peace for the world. And how are you going to recognize him? He's going to come riding on a baby donkey. He's going to come riding on a young donkey. Now, there's so much more that could be said about Zechariah 9. And if you're um, in the market for a new passage to meditate on and pray through in your devotions, Zechariah 9 would be a good spot. But we've got to get back to Luke 19. But just keep this in your mind that there's been a time when God has promised a coming king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that king is victorious because he's trusted in Yahweh. And that's going to result in peace. So Luke 19, starting in verse 28, it says that he's getting near to Jerusalem. It says, uh, after he said this, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And Luke is not just giving you a location here. He's not just, you know, letting you be able to place Jesus on a map. He's actually um, moving the plot line of the book along. In Luke chapter 9, verse 51, so 10 chapters earlier, uh, it says that Jesus, literally the phrase is, set his face to Jerusalem. He set out resolutely, he is determined to make it to Jerusalem because, and he makes it clear, he has to die and rise again and suffer. But nobody seems to get that. Throughout Luke, there's... um, different occasions or people that might try to detract him from Jerusalem, but he is determined to get there. And so throughout Luke, from 951 up until now, you have phrases like, as he was going to Jerusalem, as he's getting closer, he's getting closer. And so when he says that he's getting near Jerusalem, what he's telling you is, we're getting close to the climax. We're getting close to something important, something that's been building this whole time. 
And so Jesus tells him to go get the colt, that Zechariah nudging you, Zechariah, or Luke nudging you, hey, Zechariah 9. Um, but notice what Jesus says. It has to be one that's never been ridden or never been sat on. Biblical writers don't waste ink, okay? The details matter. And so why is it important that the donkey has never been ridden? Well, throughout the Bible, if you're going to give something to God, either through sacrifice or somehow with divine purposes, it's got to be the best you have, okay? So in Old Testament times, if you're going to sacrifice something, it's going to be your firstborn, it's going to be an animal that's unblemished, a really good one. Okay, you're not going to run the animal for a decade on the farm and then when it can't keep up with the rest, take it to the temple and sacrifice it because it's not keeping up. There's a number of, other, uh, a number of examples, uh, the kinds of stones that could be used for building an altar. Um, there's a story in 1 Samuel about a cart being built to carry the ark and it's got to be a specific kind and the cows that carry the ark can't have ever worked before. And all of this is just communicating the point that God is not worshipped with our leftovers. He deserves our very best. Kings, <laughs> kings don't drive used cars. They, they just don't. Because they're kings. And Jesus doesn't ride a donkey that's been ridden before. This is Luke indicating to you there is something divine. There is something significant about Jesus. Now this makes the fact that Jesus identifies himself as a servant, and I kind of talked about this last week, identifies himself as a servant. He's willing to be born into a modest home. He's willing to live a life of poverty, all the more striking. And while he is the humblest of all men, Jesus is God himself and he is worthy of all the honor that we would and should give to God. So the disciples go ahead, they find the colt, they untie it, and they bring it back. And as Jesus gets on and he begins riding into town, and just as we roll out the red carpet for dignitaries and celebrities, his disciples throw their cloaks on the ground, so not even the donkey will touch the dirt. This man must be undefiled, he must be uh, celebrated and exalted and the joy that's been building in them as they've seen him do all of these miracles and heard his teaching, it explodes out of their mouths in praise. And they say, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. Does any of that remind you of Christmas? Any of that sound kind of familiar? Peace in heaven, glory in the highest? Does that sound sort of like Glory in the highest, peace on earth, goodwill to men. It's, it's not exactly the same, but it's very similar phrasing uh, to what the angels said when Jesus was born earlier in Luke's gospel. And so just as when Jesus is born because of the man who he will become, God is praised by angels, the reason for which he came, the reason for which he was born is now approaching, he's praised again in almost the same language. It's kind of a silly thing, but it reminds me of a door chime in a store. You walk through the door, and it ding-dong, and it announces your, your presence to everybody. I'm here, right? <laughs> and then as you walk out, it chimes again as you were, right? <laughs> this, pr- this, phrasing, this phrasing is sort of, think of it like, almost like a heavenly door chime. He's here, and he's about to go. 
But the, the really interesting thing they say is the first sentence. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. If you've got a study Bible or a Bible that refer- does like cross-referencing, that might tell you that it's quoting Psalm 118, verse 26. And that's kind of true. Pay attention here because this is super interesting. If you were to go back and read Psalm 118, it's all about a man whose enemies are surrounding him, and because of his faith in Yahweh, he is delivered. Okay? So start thinking Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118. These, these themes are going to collide. And so this man in Psalm 118 trusts in Yahweh, and his trust results in victory over his enemies. And then, I'll just read it. I don't have it on the screen, but let me just read it to you. After this happens... Here, verse 17, I will not die but live. This is Psalm 118. I've been delivered. I'm not gonna die because I've trusted in Yahweh. Open for me the gates of righteousness. I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. He, it's a procession. He's entering the city. Open the gates. I'm coming. I'm coming back to the city after my victorious defeat of my enemies. And then the next verse, or the next, a few verses down, which is what's quoted in Luke, is the crowd in the city calling out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now what's interesting about Psalm 118 is it never uses the word king. It doesn't say blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. It says blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, I'm going to tie this all together in just a moment. But one of the things I want you to see is that the books of the Bible talk to each other a lot. They're talking to each other right now and they help us understand what's happening in any given passage. There's almost always another spot in the Bible that will bring it some clarity, that will bring it some richness. And if you, the more you read, the more you understand, the more you realize this is huge. They're not just saying, hey, cool, Jesus is coming. They're bringing expectations from all over the Old Testament. And there's a few other places that can collide with this. Isaiah 9, Isaiah 2, a, f- a place in Malachi. All of it will come together. And so what they do, when they say blessed is, not he, but blessed is the king, they insert a word. And what they're doing is they're connecting the dots between Isaiah or between Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118. And they see those coming together, colliding, and both of them coming to fulfillment right in front of their eyes. And they're saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus is the man of Psalm 118. Jesus is the king of Zechariah 9. He is fulfilling all of it. And so they praise, they rejoice. After thousands of years of waiting, he's come. After the groaning of many generations, he has finally come. After the anticipation of centuries, he has finally come and everything will be okay. God has come. The king has come. And so they rejoice. They're happy. But every party has its pooper. <laughs> and you've got the Pharisees sitting in the crowd, and they object. Now, before we get talking too bad about these Pharisees, let me just remind you, not every Pharisee was totally evil all the time. Um, I've tried to convince my son, not all Pharisees hated Jesus. Most did. 
Most did reject him. But there are some, like Nicodemus, who become his disciples. And so these Pharisees in particular, they're in the crowd, that's saying one thing, but they even call him teacher and not in a sarcastic, undercutting sort of way. They have at least some level of respect, which admittedly probably won't last past the next sentence, but it's there. They call him teacher. It's a far cry from Lord, but it's something. And they say, teacher, tell your disciples to be quiet. See, they know their Bibles too. They see what the crowd is doing. They know Psalm 118. They know Zechariah 9. They see what the crowd is saying about Jesus, that he's the king, he's the Messiah, he's the deliverer, he's the one to bring us peace. Teacher he may be to the Pharisees, but this was too far. This was too much. Tell them to be quiet. Well, Jesus tells another group to be quiet. Instead, he says, if they're quiet, the stones themselves will cry out. All of creation, including you and me, was made for the glory of God. You have all of God's creative and powerful energy behind the praise of Jesus and the glory of God in the person of Jesus. And you cannot stop it. It is too much force, too much pressure, and it is erupting out of the mouths of his disciples. And you, can't, you just can't stop it. You don't stop a volcano from erupting by putting a cork on the top. There's just too much force. I don't know if you've ever been down to Esther Short Park or anywhere where you see those fountains that are all fed by the same pipe and if you cover one of them with your hand or your foot, the others just get higher, right? It's not like it just goes away. And that's, if they're quiet, the stones, creation itself will protest the silence. Geography will break down and inanimate objects will erupt. Jesus must be praised he must be. There's one uh, pastor back in the South, he was preaching on this, and the title of his sermon was, Ain't No Rock Gonna Take My Place. <laughs> it's a clever title, it was cool. And so the question is, are we gonna praise him or someone else? He will be praised. That's not the issue. The question is, are we gonna do it? Now what's interesting though, is Jesus' response here because if, if you've read the Gospels, you might remember there are some times when Jesus um, kind of refuses this sort of treatment. Like after he does a miracle, you ever remember him saying things like, don't tell anyone? Like, go, just go to the temple, offer the sacrifices, do what people tell you, don't, don't say anything about this. Keep quiet. Keep it on the down low. And there's a few verses that tell us why he does that, um, but basically it says he doesn't want to give in to their expectations of what the king and Messiah would be or what he would do. He knew, uh, in the way John says it, he knew what was in the heart of man. He knew what they thought he was going to be like. He knew what they thought the king and Messiah would be, and he was the king that no one expected. He was the king they didn't know that they needed. In fact, even later in Luke, this expectation comes out. Some of the disciples who were likely in this crowd, after he had died, before they knew he had come back, they say, we thought he was the one to bring the kingdom. Their expectation was different. Because under, uh, at that time, the Jews were under Roman rule. They had an authority over them. And so what they expected was Jesus to throw those people off and to establish independence establish Jewish independence and bring back the glory of King David and Solomon and bring back the glory, the glory days. 
But that's obviously not what he did. And that's not what he was even intending to do. And so their expectations of a king was, were far too small. He doesn't bring his kingdom by force. He doesn't ride in on a war chariot with a sword, killing people. He doesn't bring it by his own power. The way Jesus brings victory is by his own trust in Yahweh and God himself, who is Jesus, I mean, we're getting into the Trinity here, brings victory for all of us. He does not bring his kingdom by killing his enemies, but by dying for them. About a week after this takes place, Instead of overthrowing Rome, Jesus is nailed to the cross by Rome. He suffers in the place of his enemies, and three days later, he rises again. What they didn't understand, see, do you see why it says they're praising him in Luke 19? It says they praised him for all the miracles they'd seen. They had seen his power over the spiritual world, over the physical world, and so they knew, rightly, that he had the kind of power that was needed for their expectations. What they didn't realize what the great, that the greatest miracle, the greatest victory was yet to come. That his victory over sin and death was what they were praising him for even though they thought they were praising him for other stuff. His greatest victory had not yet happened when they were praising him. That victorious procession out of Zechariah 9 and Psalm 118 is probably not just the miracles. It's his victory over death. It's his victory over death and sin for all of us. See, you and I, we're like the disciples. We're trapped. We're trapped in our own sin. We're trapped in a world and we need someone to deliver us, not just from uh, rulers that we can see, but from forces that we have created, that, that are inside of us, our own sin, and spiritual forces of, over which we have no control and no power. But three days later, he rises again, and that's when he establishes the kingdom. Not only is he the king they didn't expect, the kingdom is far different than what they thought. And ever since he rose from the dead, he has been establishing his kingdom and bringing people in to this ever-growing kingdom. So the question is, how do we respond? Why, Why does Luke include this? A good question to ask yourself anytime you're studying a passage of scripture is, How am I supposed to respond? And I phrase that carefully. Not, what am I supposed to do? Okay? Sometimes you should do something. But other times, the way you're supposed to respond is just by thinking differently. Or by feeling differently. Or by praying differently. It's not always necessarily doing something. So the question is, how does Luke want us to respond to this? There are several implications Several different ways I think we could respond. I'll I'll focus in on three. First, we are to recognize that Jesus is the king. He is the blessed king who comes in the name of the Lord. Luke is wanting us to identify ourselves with the crowd. We're the audience in Zechariah 9, Psalm 118, and Luke 19. Now just think for a moment, why do they call him blessed? Because of his victory, right? But just think a little bit further. Their destiny is tied up with his victory or defeat. Think of the imagery here. They're in a city helpless. He's out fighting the battle. If he loses, the city is taken by enemies. 
which means you're a slave, which means you're oppressed. If he wins, you're free. They are praising him because his victory or defeat is their victory or defeat. They are identified with him. They are tied up with his destiny and the fact that he's been delivered, bless him because that means we're delivered. And so when we recognize him as our king, we become identified with him. And, and oh man, 1 Peter and so many other passages in scripture um, identify our destiny with Christ that we, if we suffer with him, we'll be glorified with him. And so when we recognize him as our king, our destiny is tied up with his. Jesus is the king who sets us free. He's not, Luke is not telling us this just so that we would know what the disciples thought of him on this particular day. He's telling us this so that we would identify with him as our king. When Zechariah 9 says, blessed is your king who comes to you. It's not the king. And so the question is, are we going to identify ourselves with this king? Are we going to recognize him the second, rejoice in what's been done. That's the call in Zechariah 9, right? It's an imperative. Rejoice. Be happy. This is good news. His victory is good news for us. But it's not always that easy, right? To just be happy. Life can really be a bummer sometimes. You get let go at work. You're underemployed, unemployed. You get passed up for a promotion. Your marriage is struggling. You can't even identify exactly why. It kind of just is. Your kids might be in a rough stage. You don't know what to say, what to do, if you can say or do anything. You've got health issues. You've got money problems. Maybe you're just plain old depressed and you don't even know why and you don't know how to get out of it. Well, uh, I don't have a silver bullet for you. But I will say this, that the command to rejoice is not the command to pretend. Life can be dark, and the Bible is brutally honest with us, more honest than we are with ourselves a lot of the time. It recognizes the difficulties of life. And we're not supposed to rejoice because everything's just fine and dandy. We're supposed to rejoice because even in the darkest and most difficult seasons of life, he is still victorious. Every way that you suffer is a result of sin somehow. It's either your own sin, you've made your bed and you kind of have to lie in it. Maybe it's the sin of someone else. Their greed, their selfishness has hurt you in some way. Maybe it's just the fact that you're living in a fallen world that's been corrupted by sin. Somehow, your suffering is connected to sin. And the, the reason you are to rejoice is because there has been victory over sin. The ultimate consequence of sin is death and separation from God. And that has been dealt with. And so even in your darkest and most difficult moments, you still have victory. Jesus has still been the victorious king who marches forward. And so you're to rejoice in what's been done. To get your eyes off of yourself and realize it's in him. Your hope is never in your circumstance. On the flip side, if life's going great for you, you did get the promotion, you've got a lot of money saved up in the bank, your marriage is great, your kids are happy, your rejoicing is not to be in that either. Your rejoicing is to be in his victory still because you know that at any moment those things could be taken from you. 
tightly connected to rejoicing in what's been done is we're to hope in what's to come. Because he's been victorious, that victory will one day bring total peace. Zechariah 9.9 has been fulfilled. The king has come. He did ride into Jerusalem on a donkey and he has been made victorious. But the day when sin, selfishness, and the desire to kill each other is gone, we're still waiting for that, aren't we? We're still waiting for Jesus to come back again. And even though it will not, there will never be another day like Luke 19, Jesus will come back. But it's not a coronation. It's a consummation. It's a fulfillment. He inaugurated his kingdom in his victory over death, but he will bring it to complete and total fulfillment when he comes back. And this time it won't be on a donkey. It will be on a war horse, and he will bring final and complete justice and peace. We look forward to that day. If you are here and you're a believer this morning, something you have got to hold on to, not just as kind of a hope for when you die, but for today, you've got to remember that your best days are always, always, always ahead of you. That is an indispensable doctrine of the Christian life that unfortunately we seem to have kind of just forgotten. And I don't mean just us as a church. I mean Christians in general. We can forget our hope is never in this life. Our hope is always in what's to come. Jesus will finally and fully establish that kingdom when he comes. He will make all things new. He says, I'll wipe every tear from their eyes. The former things will be gone. There will be peace, complete and total peace between God and humanity and among mankind. What we experience now, in part, will be brought to fulfillment then. Father in heaven, thank you Thank you so much for sending uh, Jesus Christ. God, he is, he is our king. And, and we agree with the disciples that he is blessed. And we thank you so much that you, God, uh, have given us victory. God, at the end of the day, it is salvation that he brings in his hands. And God, we thank you. We thank you for the person and the work of Christ. And Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice, for your willingness uh, to be our king and to do what it takes uh, to bring us into your kingdom. Lord, we ask that you would help us to, uh, to recognize you as our king, to live like you are our king, to rejoice honestly and truly and genuinely in what you have done and to look forward and hope for what's to come. God, to keep our, keep our eyes on you. In Jesus' name, amen.